Hello and welcome Friar Town. Today is March 2nd, and we are going to be joined by Associate Director of Player Development, Bob Walsh. I am Billy Ritchie, and this is the Friar Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone back to episode 12 of the Friar Podcast. I am of course your host Billy Ritchie and today I'm joined by the first member of the Providence College basketball operations staff. This man that I have here on the podcast with me today has spent two stints with Providence College so he has the ability to give us some insight that probably some of our other guests haven't. Our guest had their first stint with Providence College back in 1998 through 2005 and is now the Associate Director of Player Development for our Providence College Friars. Bob Walsh, welcome to the Friar Podcast. I appreciate it, Billy. It's great to talk to you. Appreciate you coming on here with us. As I mentioned to you, I loved your work on the mic as the uh, the MC on the season ticket holder call earlier in the year. So I'm going to do my best here to, uh, to do my part here on the mic. And as we do here on the Friar Podcast with every episode, we're going to start off with our favorite question. Bob Walsh, what is your favorite Rhode Island restaurant? <laughs> That's a great way to start. Well, I lived in Pawtucket for 10 years when I first uh, started working at PC when Coach Welsh came to town. So there's a there's a great little local restaurant that probably only Pawtucket residents have heard of called the Heritage Tap right off Newport Avenue, which is essentially, uh, it's on like the first floor of a house. And there's only about seven or eight tables in it and a small bar, but it's a terrific local place. The guy cooking the food is literally in a room right off the bar that they call a kitchen and it's delicious, delicious food. So I'm going with the Heritage Tap in Pawtucket. Love that. I'm a lifelong Rhode Islander and and I honestly have never been. So this is, this is something I'm going to add to my list personally. And if you don't know where it is, you're going to have trouble finding it. So you might, you might drive around a little bit, but you'll, you'll, you'll see it at some point. It's well worth the trip. I I get lost going in between Federal Hill and Broadway, so I'm going to need a little (laughs) bit of help there. But to to get things kicked off on the basketball front, let's start with your early years. You grew up in the greater New York City area. You attended Regis High School in Manhattan, and then you attended Hamilton College, learning under the great Tom Murphy. Can you tell us how your journey started in basketball from an early age? I was always an athlete you know, growing up, just, you know, playing my brother is is a year and a half older than me. So I always kind of wanted to be like him, played soccer, played baseball, played basketball, played football. Um, You know, basketball kind of became a love of mine just because it was something you could play pretty much all year. You know, we'd play it all summer, play pickup in the city and in the park. And uh, so, and I knew going through high school, I wanted to stay involved in athletics. You know, I, I wanted to be, I wasn't, you know, sure I was going to be a coach, but I thought about maybe sports media. Uh, I wanted to be in the gym. I, I didn't want to go to work like a regular nine to five or that I knew. My family is is all, you know, business school graduates, uh, public accountants, uh, that route. So, uh, you know, the leadership side of things kind of came naturally to me. And I always joke, you know, it was, it was, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, and the Yankees were all set at shortstop. I would have would have loved to play shortstop for the Yankees if I could have. But, uh, you know, I realized in high school I wasn't going to be good enough to get paid to play. You know, I might have the opportunity to 
play division three somewhere, whether it was soccer or basketball. So, uh, you know, I went to Hamilton where actually coach Murphy, you know, who you mentioned ran an elite program, you know, my freshman year, we were the number one division three team in the country, but they also had a JV program that I knew I could be a part of. And that's where I started coaching actually. So I got to start coaching with the program at Hamilton uh, when I was a junior in college after I stopped playing for two years. And, you know, that really became what I wanted to do. You know, it's not an easy career path to get on, uh, but I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where, um, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to find a job and make money right away. You know, I was in a situation where I could kind of live out of my trunk, so to speak, as a lot of people in the business do, and just kind of grind my way into, you know, being a college basketball coach. And once I started doing it, I knew it was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's great. And, that, and that's a very unique story. Not too many people get to start that part of the journey while they're still in college. So kudos to you for finding that opportunity. And as you moved on in your college career, let's, let's, or coaching career, let's, let's start off with your first two stops. Iona, which I actually know because I lived there when I interned in New York back when I was at PC, I would describe it as a smaller Providence college and, and San Diego as well. I'm sure that was an absolutely terrible place to, uh, to start your coaching career. Uh, Tell us about those first two stops to your career. I started as a graduate assistant at Iona right after getting out of school. So I got out of school in 94 and both my parents uh, were alums of Iona. I grew up, my mom's house is two miles from the campus. So I kind of grew up going to basketball games there. Jim Valvano, Pat Kennedy, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s. So um, I was a graduate assistant there for two years, uh, actually for three years, but Jerry Welsh was the head coach, Tim's father. And uh, my first year when I was there, Jerry had to step down for health reasons. And Tim took over uh, as the interim head coach for like the last 10, 10 games or so. And uh, I was a grad assistant actually working for the SID and just spending all my free time in the basketball office. And I went to, to coach Welsh, the son, and just said, hey, I'm interested in helping out. And he was always a guy that was like, yeah, the more the merrier, you know, even as we got through, we got to Providence College. And when I worked for coach uh, in the Big East, you know, he wanted to have people around who could help. So I I got my first sort of foot in the door there. uh, And then, but I was still a grad assistant and, and Kyle Smith, who's now the head coach at Washington State, was actually a roommate of mine in college. We went to college together. So, um, he and I were really tight. He was working at the University of San Diego when he first got out of college. He invited me out there to actually work a team camp for a couple of weeks in the summer. And then they had a position open uh, on their staff in early September. One of their assistants got a video job in the NBA. And, you know, I was bartending in New York to make a little money and getting ready to go back to Iona to be a grad assistant. And um, he had mentioned my name to Brad Holland, the head coach there. And I got uh, hired. That was my first official assistant, you know, division one assistant job. You know, I think I was 25 years old uh, out at the University of San Diego. And so I, I literally was there for about eight months. I got out there October 1st and April 1st of the following year was when Coach Welsh uh, was offered the job at Providence and he asked me to come back with him. Amazing. And let's talk about Providence round one, 1998 to 2005. 
one of the things to note is that you were a huge mentor to Ryan Gomes within that run. And obviously I remember that run pretty fondly because I was a kid back then, but tell us about being Tim Welsh's right-hand man and that first run here at Providence College. Growing up in New York, obviously the Big East was in my heart. You know, I was actually a Syracuse fan just because I was sort of a, a counterculture guy in New York City when St. John's, you know, but that was the 80s that, you know, where the Big East just exploded. And I, I love Pearl Washington. So it was literally a dream come true, right, to sit on the bench at Madison Square Garden, to go to the Carrier Dome. Um, you know, I knew what I knew of Providence College was the little bald mascot bouncing around at the games, you know, having grown up watching the Big East. So uh, I was 26 years old. It was incredible to me to have that opportunity. And Coach Welsh was so good to me because he gave me a ton of responsibility. And he was always a guy that would, you know, you could take on as much as you want as, as long as you proved you were competent. So, uh, and the way it was structured back then, a lot of fans might not know this, but you had three assistants on staff, but only two of them were allowed to recruit. You know, right now, all three assistant coaches can recruit, but back then only two could recruit. So that third spot, as it was called, was more geared towards a younger guy getting into the business. You know, I'm not sure nowadays too many guys like myself who didn't have some reputation as a player or play for, you know, John Calipari or Coach K would get a Big East assistant job at the age of 26 because they were respected as a coach. Um, there's so much in recruiting now that you see those spots are filled by, you know, recruiters. So, um, but that allowed me because my first couple of years, I wasn't recruiting. They then changed the rules so that I could go on the road, but, uh, I was able to get involved in every aspect of the program. You know, I buried myself in workouts, you know, with guys like John Linehan and Jamel Thomas and Ryan Gomes and Herb Hill. And, um, you know, I did a ton of scouting work. Uh, coach really trusted me with that. Um, you know, running the camps, you know, doing some of the operations work, uh, academic stuff. Uh, it, it was kind of a, you know, Dan Gavitt had said to me when I first got the job, he said, coaching at Providence is like coaching 101. You know, it's just a great learning experience because, you know, obviously it's the smallest school in the big power leagues. You know, it, it's sort of a regular, um, you know, Catholic a small school that just happens to play on the biggest stage basketball wise. So you have to, you know, sweep the floor, you have to, you know, do the laundry, you have to do all that stuff that I think ultimately makes you a better coach. So those years were terrific. I mean, I had seven years. I'm so grateful for Tim for the opportunity that he gave me and, and some of the relationships, the connections with players that I developed. And, and that's really where I grew up as a coach. I mean, I grew up as a coach at Providence College. Uh, it was a tremendous experience for me. Absolutely. And I think PC takes on the persona of Rhode Island as the team of Rhode Island basketball, as in we're a smaller school, but we're a big brand and we're able to make some noise when we get the opportunity. So I think it's awesome that you started your career here and you're back here now and would be remiss though, if we didn't bring up your tenure with the other Rhode Island team, I've played many a round of golf over at Triggs right next door to Rhode Island College. And the things you were able to accomplish at Rhode Island College were pretty amazing. I mean, eight straight NCAA tournaments in your 13 years, 204 and 63, 28 wins, a school record, and an Elite Eight run. Can you tell us about your time being the head coach of the Rhode Island Anchorman? 
It was really special. And actually, yeah, I only spent nine years there because the other four as a head coach, I was at Maine, but um, it, it was incredibly special. Uh, I was really lucky. My first head coaching job, you know, it, it was kind of time for me to grow more as a coach. And I thought I could do that by being a head coach and kind of jumping into the fire. And, uh, you know, I, I got the job in early September, actually, literally, you know, dro just drove an extra mile to work one day. You know, I mean, it's it's right down the road. And um, the opportunity to, you know, Richard Patino actually said this to me once, um, you know, when we were talking about coaching a couple of years ago on the road, he said, you know, the ability to learn as a head coach where no one cares, so to speak, is really important, right? There's less pressure. You know, he spent a year at Florida International before he got the Minnesota job. So I took over the best team in the league. You know, I was really fortunate with that. The team was really talented when I took over. So that first year when I was screwing up all over the place, we were able to cover that um, and win some games. And really, I, I was I had some time to get my footing. And uh, without question, the toughest kids I'll ever coach, um, the, the tightest culture I'll ever be a part of. Um, you know, the school, as you mentioned, I mean, the school had had no history of success. And after that first year, we won 19 games. That was our worst year. You know, we went to eight straight tournaments to be able to sustain elite success like that. Uh, it was really, really special. And, you know, I actually, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a book about it. That's how special it was. So, yeah. And, you know, I went to Bishop Hendrickson in Warwick and we definitely had some kids go over to Rhode Island college and, and play over there. And it was great to see the success that they were able to achieve. And let's talk about your opportunity getting that D one head coaching job over at Maine. What was it like taking over a program, trying to change the culture at that level and, you know, just completely remake an, an organization? It was incredibly challenging. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I knew what I was getting into, you know, the difference. And, and one of the one of the real key learning points for me was, you know, the difference at Rick was at Rick. I turn I, I took over the best team in the league uh, at Maine. I took over the worst team in the league. Um, you know, my joke was when I got the main job <laughs> was, you know, the difference is at Maine. I have scholarships. But at Rick, I had better players. Um, <laughs> and I mean, our my last team at Rick, and, and this isn't to slight anybody at Maine because I love those kids, but my last team at Rick would have beaten my first team at Maine by 15 points. Um, so the challenge was tremendous. It's an area where basketball is really important, not unlike Providence, where, you know, there just aren't as many people. I, I think Bangor that the metro area in Bangor is, is basically the size of Warwick. But, um, you know, basketball is important up there. It was an opportunity to connect and to change a mentality, right? To go from a, a losing mentality to a winning mentality, to a championship mentality, which was right in my wheelhouse. And I'm really proud of the way that we did that. Uh, obviously, we didn't win a lot of games, and that made – turning the culture over even harder. You know, it's one of the things I realized was, you know, talent matters when you're doing those things. I mean, it's interesting. It's easier to coach Ryan Gomes because when you tell Ryan Gomes to do something, he just kind of, you know, looks at it, picks it up and does it, you know, whereas somebody else who's not as gifted, 
you know, they struggle with it for a little bit and therefore you have to keep teaching. You have to keep coaching. You have to keep creating buy-in. But um, I became a much better coach when I went to Maine and I created some relationships with players, uh, you know, having to go through what we went through that'll last forever. And, um, you know, it's interesting when we were at Rick, we never, ever defined ourselves by wins or losses, you know, and everybody gave us praise because of how many games we won, but that was how everybody else judged us. Uh, and we did the same thing at Maine, you know, the scoreboard wasn't going to determine who we were. Uh, we established a culture where what we did every day was who we were. Uh, and I'm really proud of it. Yeah. And I think it led you back to exactly where you should be. And that's, <laughs> and, and, that, and that's here with us here round two at Providence college, obviously like I've been a big fan of the school since I was a little kid. And I mean, it's not two campuses anymore. The Louis is now a dollar tree. <laughs> My dad called clubbies club Eagles. He's a local and you know, it's, it's now non-existent. So a lot of things have certainly changed around campus and in campus. Can you tell us, you know, from an insider's perspective, you know, what has changed, obviously the practice facility, obviously, you know, some different logistical things, but like, you know, what has changed and, and what have been some big things that you've noticed in your second round at PC? Well, I, I've been around long enough that I know where things used to be, you know, so I'm, I'm a true Rhode Islander, actually, you know, I can still describe like, oh yeah, get, you know, go down to where clubbies used to be and then make a left, you know, to give directions. But, um, <laughs> You know, the biggest change, and obviously there's physical changes, because I think people who graduated or, or who were in school, uh, you know, like our student managers and some of the GAs when I was around the first time, you know, that's now 20 years ago. The physical change is noticeable, right? You look at campus and there's new buildings. Uh, to me, the biggest change is, is the mentality. Um, you know, I think Bob Driscoll, combined with Father Shanley, created a mentality of, of belief, uh, an expectation of a high level of success. Uh, you know, truthfully, when I first got to Rhode Island College, or Rhode Island College, excuse me, Providence College, um, the mentality was a lot of, but that's how we've always done it, you know, which I think are some of the most dangerous words, um, you know, when you're talking about team performance as well, that's how we've always done it. Uh, it was very much a mentality of like, yeah, but we can't do that here because we're PC. You know, uh, I use a term terminally unique, you know, that so many places are terminally unique. It's like, yeah, but we'll never do that here because it's Providence College. Uh, when Bob Driscoll came to the athletic department, uh, he changed that mentality. You know, he calls it a conversation, a possibility. You know, he's a guy that comes in and his immediate response to any problem or question is, okay, let's figure out how we can do that. Uh, and I think that's a change from where it used to be. Yeah, there's no way we can do that. Um, you know, when he got connected with Father Shanley and Father Shanley's vision and leadership and, and Father Shanley's one of the elite leaders I've ever been around, you know, that mentality only grew. So, um, you know, the vibe on campus, the mentality of the place is different. Uh, obviously, physically, there's a lot of difference with new buildings and new facilities. And, and you know, it's incredible. I mean, I remember, you know, you, you probably, I, I don't know if you remember the old weight room and workout room that was downstairs next to where the ROTC rooms were. But, 
you know, that's when, that's what the, the weight room was when I was first there, the school's built three weight rooms since then, you know, uh, you know, when you consider one in hockey and, you know, uh, one in, you know, over in Peterson and then the new one in the Ruane center. So there's just tremendous growth in the mental approach, uh, which I think makes it a different place. And look, what, what to me is always, made Providence College special is the energy of the people, right? That the people on campus, they love the place. Um, they, they don't take themselves too seriously. You know, they work hard at it, uh, but they have fun, whether it's education or athletics or whatever it is. So that vibe hasn't changed. I think it's only just grown a little bit with some leadership establishing a new mentality. Absolutely. And, and you can feel it. You, you could certainly feel it within the leadership group and when you're on campus, especially because I graduated back in 2014, you, you could feel that they wanted to take the school to the next level and that being a small school was not going to be an excuse anymore. And I give them a lot of credit on that as somebody who's been a follower, you know, a supporter of the team for a long time. But no question. Bob, let's talk about your book. Let's talk about Entitled to Nothing. So it caught my eye online because I saw the Stan Van Gundy quote on the, on the cover. And I was like, wow, I, I, I got to go over and grab that. And then, you know. I just want to know what inspired you to write the book. What are some of your favorite excerpts from the book? And, you know, tell us the story of, you know, how it all came together. So coaching at Rick, we realized pretty early that we were doing something special. You know, that second year and the book really spans my first two years at Rick. And it's about the culture we built, uh, the mistakes that I made, the leadership lessons that, you know, I learned. Um, But we knew going through that second year. And we would say it as a group, like, guys, what we're doing here is special. You know, I had a a tough group of kids that had never really achieved success together, but had been through a lot. I was their third head coach in four years. Um, Actually, you know, my first year was their third head coach in three years. So uh, there was, there was a mentality, a toughness, uh, a connection amongst the group that was really special. And, it fit exactly, you know, their mentality and, and sort of the toughness that the school embodies fit my approach perfectly. Uh, so I knew it was something that was was really special. And as I moved on, you know, went to Maine and, you know, now I'm back at PC, it became clear to me that I, I don't know that I'll ever be a part of anything that tight, you know, that type of culture again. And I've always liked to write, you know, when I was a coach at Rick, I started a website. I started a blog as a way of kind of sharing basketball and leadership information. And it made me a better coach because I I realized, you know, to write, to get your message across in a clear and concise way, you know, you have to sort of organize your thoughts. And it's similar to the way you want to deliver it to your team, right? You have a 30 second timeout. You have about 15 seconds to get the point across. So writing helped me as a coach. And over the summers, you know, one day I woke up and I thought, you know, it's just a really cool story. Like, why don't I just tell the story of that team and see where it goes? So I started, you know, on the first day I got the job and how kind of what I went through and meeting the team and how we sort of established it. And, you know, before you knew it, I had about 55,000 words and it was two years and it kind of wrapped up after we went to the Elite Eight that second year. And, um, you know, as I told the story, it was like, man, I remember that game. Wow. That's, that's where I learned this, you know, or that's where I learned that. So yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. It's been out for about 
uh, a month and a half now. I've gotten some really great feedback on it. Um, you know, it's called Entitled to Nothing. That The website is entitledtonothingbook.com with all the information. So there are some really, I think, you know, pertinent stories and obviously uh, some great ones that are that are near and dear to my heart in the book that I think people can relate to. Absolutely. And we will certainly be sharing that with the followers of the Friar podcast and, you know, go out there and support Coach Walsh. Now, now, Coach, we recently saw Coach Battle step up and, and coach a game recently because, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, Ed, Ed wasn't feeling well, but it led to a great video of uh, the team surrounding Coach Battle after the victory, you know, in, in the locker room after the game. That looked pretty cool. It was terrific. And that actually segues perfectly into our next question. What is it like leading from an assistant coach role comparative to a head coaching role? You've had the experience of both. It's certainly different. Uh, it's it's fun in different ways. Your relationship with the players is different when you're not the one making the final decisions and they just simply look at you differently. Right. I mean, when you walk into the gym as a head coach, they are, I mean, I had players at Rick tell me in exit interviews that they would determine the mood that I was in based on what color shirt I was wearing. Like, okay, he's got the black shirt on today, man. Like they thought that had something to do with, you know, my tone. So they are literally reading you as soon as they see you as the head coach. And everything you say as the head coach uh, has to be, um, you know, concise, direct, and you're making decisions. You're not making suggestions, right? So your relationship as an assistant coach uh, can be a little bit different. You know, it can be, uh, you know, there's stuff quite honestly, when I'm a head coach, there's stuff that I want players to be able to share with my assistants that they're not going to share with me, right? So that they have this relationship. Maybe it's, you know, maybe they're a little bit upset about playing time. You know, maybe they they feel like they're not getting the ball enough. And it's, you know, they don't have a bad attitude about it, but they just want to talk about it. And they don't want to turn it into, you know, like those conversations can be really, really important uh, as an assistant, you know? So for me, um, having been a head coach, everybody was always like, yeah, would you, you would never want to be an assistant again. And I was like, man, I would kind of like it. You know, when, when you're a head coach, I mean, I was an assistant with Tim for seven years and then a, a head coach for 13, you know, that was 20 years of really just, just one system other than what I was doing myself. Right. So, you know, learning from a guy like coach Cooley and, and the staff and, you know, Ivan, Brian, and, and Jeff and Kevin and Matt and the guys that we have is really, um, you know, it's making me a lot better as a coach. And it kind of puts you back to, okay, my relationship with the players, uh, especially off the court, is a little bit different. There isn't that sort of um, intimidation factor, so to speak, at, you know, that the head coach has where it's like, okay, well, if I say the wrong thing here, am I going to get in his doghouse? Um so it's been a lot of fun and, it, and it's really, it really is an interesting dynamic because you can relate to the players in a different way. You know, being a huge fan of the team myself and just curious on this note, can you talk about your day to day and what, it, what it's like in your role with PC? Yeah, it's uh, you know, I, I'm pretty lucky. I mean, when Ed and I first started talking about the job, you know, he was interested in somebody with head coaching experience. So I try and look at, the program from, from 30,000 feet, you know, and, and take a big picture approach to it. 
which isn't always easy to do as a head coach when you're in the middle of the season. And, it, you know, I always joke, you know, it's like assistant coaches, you know, they don't want, they don't want anybody to sub. They don't ever want to, you know, like David Duke should never come out, you know, Nate Watson should never, you know, like there's, but there's a big picture element to it too, right? You know, guys getting tired and other guys getting experience and that kind of stuff. So that's just one example. Um, you know, my day to day is, you know, it's usually checking in with Ed. Uh, you know, my role is to try and make sure those other guys have everything they need to do their jobs the best they can, you know, whether it's collecting recruiting film and, and, you know, taking a look at that for them, um, you know, helping, you know, edit film of practice for the players, edit film, uh, you know, scout film with the GAs. So the coaches have it for scouting reports, Um, you know, putting relevant film, I think in front of the head coach, you know, with, you know, whether it's from practice, um, you know, keeping statistical data, you know, so that we have uh, informed information with the decisions that we're making. Um, you know, it's, it's actually pretty cool to be a part of practice where I'm essentially all I can do is sort of be a, a positive energy giver, you know? Um, so connecting with the players off the court stuff, just mental stuff. Hey, how are you doing? You know, like what, how are you feeling? Like, where's your head at right now? You know, getting a feel for where they're at. Um, it's a different role and it's been, you know, it's been a lot of fun to try and find ways that I can help. Ultimately what it is though, is making sure that those guys have whatever it is they need to do their job effectively and take some of the other stuff off their plate so that, you know, when, when Brian Blaney's in there working out Nate Watson, like he's just only focused on working out Nate Watson and making him better. And he doesn't have to handle all the other stuff that comes up during the day. Absolutely. And from a fan's perspective, we just assume that it's like, oh, you know, being a college basketball coach, you know, you, you coach the games and it's like, it's a 24, seven, 365 day year operation, always recruiting, always looking for those next big wins and those next big recruits to land. So I give you guys a lot of credit for what you do. And I think it's another perfect segue here. It's like, Bob, what's it like working for the great Ed Cooley? I mean, obviously my family's from Providence. I love Ed's story. You know, it's just incredible to to even think about, you know, how how he, you know, came to fruition and how through divine providence he became the the head coach at, at PC. Can you talk about what it's like working with him and working for him? It's a trip. I'll tell you that. It's I mean, it, it's a lot of fun. You know, you just can't you can't really be around the guy uh, without enjoying yourself, you know. So um, j- just the force of his personality uh you know, as ba- I always say this as basketball coaches, we are really, really good at taking ourselves too seriously. You know, we, we just and, and like you said, you know, look, you're thinking about the team all the time, you know, and during the season, there's always another game. And there's always another recruit to call and this and that. But it, it's not exactly hard labor. You know, I mean, I, we're in the gym every day. We're surrounded by basketball and college kids. Uh, Ed has a great appreciation for that, right? I mean, Ed does not lose perspective and he wants to win as much as anybody, but, um, you know, he's busting chops just as much as anybody else. I mean, he wants to laugh. Uh, so it's fun. He keeps it loose. Um, 
you know, he challenges you. He gives you the space to, you know, to speak up, to, to be yourself. Uh, but he challenges you, um, you know, to provide value, you know, to help. I mean, he wants, he wants to hear from his assistants. You know, he's not one of those guys who shows up and knows, uh, you know, this is how it's got to be done. And this is how we're going to do it. He's asking questions. He wants to hear different opinions. Um, and he's, he's so invested in the team and the players, you know, and that's something that's, you know, one of the things that I've really taken from him is, you know, his investment level in their growth is really genuine and, and is really important. Um, so, and he sees the game in a, in a way that, I mean, he sees the game, two or three steps ahead offensively uh, a lot of ways. Like he, he'll see something that happens and, and say, hey, write that down. You know, we're going to come back to that. You know, they're going to double that screen and we're going to slip Nate to the hoop and get a layup and that, you know. So um, there's a technical side to it that I think people don't appreciate um, that he's – I mean, he's a basketball guy. He loves watching film. He loves talking about the game last night and did you see what they ran in overtime to get a shot. So – um, it is a all-encompassing, immersive uh, basketball experience working for Ed, which is really cool. That's great. That's great to hear, and not surprising. You can tell that he genuinely, you know, cares about all the guys that he brings in, and and, and that's got to be a huge part of the pitch of coming to Providence College. You know, there are some organizations, some universities out there who may be saying, "Hey, you know, I'm going to get you to the league in a, you know, in a year or two. It's like, hey, you know, we want to build you." you know, mind, body, and spirit at Providence College, you know, us, we together, family friars. So I, I know that it's something that I personally have been attached to and I love about Ed Cooley. And I know there are other fans as well who feel that way. And let's talk about recent years. I mean, there have certainly been some ups and downs within it. I remember, you know, around the Thanksgiving time of last season, watching, you know, we were playing in a tournament and we'd lost to the College of Charlestown. And I remember I was like, oh, like, you know, things are tough right now. And then I'm at Villanova, you know, Philly cheesesteak in my hand at the end of last season. And we're here. We are beating Jay right on his home court. So there's a lot of ups and downs that come with the game of college basketball and coaching younger kids to try and make them professionals. You know, they're not, they're not robots here. So what do you think has been some of the hardest things in the ups and downs in recent years, some of your favorite memories and, you know, some of the tough times as well? Well, I can really only speak to the last two years having been here and, and, you know, we've got to find a way to be more consistent uh, with what we have. I mean, I think, you know, last year, you know, you can look at it a number of ways, right? I mean, we, we were, by the end of the year, we were a team nobody wanted to play. And, and generally, that's where Ed's teams have been, right? In February and March, um, you know, they've kicked it into gear, so to speak. Uh, but prior to that, we weren't really consistent. You know, now you can say, you know, we had some new guys were in the mix and, and this and that. But ultimately, in college basketball, you have a new team every year. You know, it's it's even if most of your players are returning, guys are older, guys are expecting more, guys want to take on bigger roles. So going on that run late, I mean, man, would we have loved to have taken that run to its conclusion, you know, with the way we were playing uh, and where we were at. Um you know, we had five seniors that I think, you know, were just kind of like, okay, you know, we're going to go, if we're going to go out, we're going to go out swinging. Um, so, you know, this year it's been, it, we haven't been able to establish 
the right mentality, you know, the mentality that Ed Cooley's teams have been known for, you know, and he said it, you know, it's been just inconsistent with the way we guard and the toughness that we have. And, you know, it's, it's, we're trying to figure it out every day. And it's one of those things when people ask you like, well, what do you think it is? And it's like, well, if we knew what it was, we'd have fixed it, you know? Um, You know, we just haven't been able to get this team to click in a way uh, you know, with the, on the defensive side, uh, with the level of toughness that has always sort of been, you know, as I've seen it sort of carried Ed's teams through kind of those up and downs, you know, last year, the end of the year, we were the best defensive team in the big East, you know, that'll get you to the tournament most years, you know, that'll get you a chance to win the league most years. So it's, it's sort of the new, the new age in college basketball, right. Where you're going to be mixing in, you know, younger and older. And and now the ability to get old in college basketball isn't about developing a freshman and turning them into sophomores and juniors, you know, with it's about, you know, mixing in some transfers, some guys who have some experience at at another level and getting them to fit. So, you know, that part has been challenging the, the, um, you know, sometimes like last year, it's not like we sat there and we said, okay, after that St. John's loss, we're playing Seton Hall. Now we figured it out. You know, we had a couple of days of practice, you know, it wasn't like we were sitting there going, okay, we've got the answers. And then before you know it, we're up 29 to five, I think against Seton Hall and the dunk is going nuts. So um, it's been an interesting year, you know, given, uh, you know, no spring and no summer certainly had an impact, you know, because you, you haven't been able to, you know, get your program in place like you'd like as much. So it forces you to rush a little bit. And it's certainly no excuse because everybody, well, most people have been in the same boat. I mean, some teams were practicing over the summer, but, um, you know, finding a way to get our guys to connect for each other uh, it has really been, it just, you know, that, you know, that togetherness that usually results in a toughness that makes us a tough out. Uh, we're still looking for at this point. Yeah. And I mean, there was an article that came out a couple of weeks ago. It was like the top 10 winning as college basketball programs are all not in the top 25. So it, it, it's certainly been a different year. Thinking back to last year, like how underrated was like Khalif Young and and Malik White coming off the bench and giving us a, you know a, a nice little shooting spark. I, I love to bring up those guys, and when I think about last year, and you know it, it, it's it's definitely been a little bit of a different year, no doubt. But at the end of the year, I mean, at the end of the day, like you know, with COVID and how things have kind of gone, you know, I think a lot of us are looking forward to next year and transitioning to something you've worked on personally, Bob. The Dynamic Leadership Academy and the Dynamic Leadership Pod. You mind talking a little bit about those things? Because I remember back in the day checking out your blog even before you were at PC when you were at Maine. So I know you've definitely written things down and you've you've been a student of the game, you know, the game the whole way. Tell us how you've recently given back through those platforms. For sure. Yeah. I started the Dynamic Leadership Academy when I was the head coach at Rick, and it was it was basically it started with conversations I was having all summer with coaches about getting into the business, you know, the division three level, you got a a lot of young assistants, uh, you know, how do you get in? How do you, how do you get better? How do you advance? And um, so I started that as sort of a different type of clinic, so to speak. It wasn't about X's and O's, you know, it wasn't about, you know, what we're going to run on offense or defense, but it was more about, leadership and, um, you know, advancing in the business. And, you know, I've always said this when I left PC the first time to be the head coach at Rick, 
75% of what I talked to my team about as a head coach was not X's and O's related, was not technical. It was always about approach and mentality and mindset. And, you know, and that was in games, that was in huddles. So I just feel like that's a part of the business that we don't really teach. And that's the most important part of the business if you're going to get your own program, right? If you're going to have a chance to be a head coach, it's being able to build a team and to lead a group of people. Um, you know, there's a lot that goes into that that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, X's and O's and, and how you're going to guard a ball screen. So uh, I started doing that in 2012, 2011, maybe. And, you know, I've done a lot of online leadership stuff with teams and, you know, the dynamic leadership podcast is something that's on athleticdirectoru.com, which is basically conversations with other coaches about their leadership approach. So I've just always felt like as a coach, the mental side of the game is overlooked and undercoached. Uh, I don't know that we necessarily prepare for it or talk about it enough how to coach it. Uh, and as coaches, I think we need to train to be able to do that. So uh, I've kind of become just a real, you know, somebody who really studies leadership and leadership approaches and, and try and share as much as I can with other coaches. I mean, it's hard to make that sort of thing tangible. And I think that's the biggest hurdle that a lot of guys I'm sure have had when trying to talk about it. And kudos to you for, you know, bringing it into a different light and bringing it to the forefront as I think, I think of it the same way, you know, whether you're, you know, coaching a team in the corporate world or you're coaching a team on the floor, it definitely, you know, makes a big difference in terms of your approach, your delivery, and, you know, your mentality to how you, how you uphold yourself and how you bring energy every day. But ending here on a fun note, Bob, you're a Newport guy. And I got to know, you know, what are some of your favorite beaches out there? What do you love about being out there on the island? <laughs> well, um, I love the vibe of Newport. I love the energy of Newport, right? There's always, and it's probably why I'm also, uh, you know, I've been a college coach forever because the energy on a college campus is just young and fun uh, and upbeat. And that's what, that's what I love about Newport. You know, there's just a, a different energy here. Um, and, but it's also a blue collar town, you know, that's what a lot of people don't understand. I mean, you know, I coached five kids at Rhode Island college from Rogers high school and they're five of the toughest kids I'll ever coach, you know, like blue collar, hard nosed toughness. So, um, you know, and, and one of the best things about Newport, I always say is if you want to act like you're 22 again, you can do that. Right. But if you want to act like you're 42 or you want to act like you're 62 and just go for a walk on the beach, mm -hmm. you can, you know, read a book. Uh, you can do that as well. So I'm a gooseberry beach guy. You know, oh, yeah. I like gooseberry. Uh, I live down in the fifth ward. So that's only about a mile from my house. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I like some of the smaller, a uh, little bit out of the way restaurants, you know, over on Broadway, you know, Absolutely. mall poor judgment, couple of places like that, you know, yeah. um, you know, but I'm a big fan of it. I love it in the summer when it's crowded. Like I'm not one of those people that lives here and just, you know, hates traffic and hates crowds. It's like, you know, I like living in a place where people want to be and I like being around a lot of people. So I enjoy it. Yeah. Now, now, now you're getting me excited for summer here because <laughs> there's nothing like a Rhode Island summer. I love poor judgment. That's actually one of my favorite bars in Newport. So great oh, call yeah. there you know, Broadway just gives a different vibe at the end of the day than Thames does. And it's nice to have, you know, the access to go and, and hang with, you know, 
thousands of people and then, you know, go back to Broadway and have a nightcap. So absolutely. Summer can't get here soon enough. Rhode Island summer is certainly special. And Bob, to conclude here, would love to see if you have any final thoughts here for some Friar fans. Well, you know what? It's such a great, um, you know, appreciate what we have because I, I know everybody wants to win and we're not winning enough. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being down when we're losing and, and we're struggling or, but appreciate what we have. It's a pretty special program. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty special community. Uh, and sometimes when you're in it, uh, you, you can lose sight of that. Um, but the passion of the fans uh, and the investment level of fans like yourself and your family really are the engine that make the program go. So um, I hope everybody appreciates what we have. It's a special community to be a part of. Um, you know, I don't want to take that for granted, win or lose. Absolutely. And thank you for helping to build that program back starting in 1998 and, you know, moving over to the North Providence, Providence line, and then jumping right back over to, <laughs> to Providence college. So Bob Walsh, thank you so much for joining us here on the Friar podcast today. Thank you for all you've done for the school and, you know, your work with, with the basketball program. And, you know, we're excited to see how this season ends up and excited to go into next year as well. So we'll, we'll definitely keep in touch and everybody go out and get entitled to nothing. My pleasure, Billy. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. And thanks for all your passion and support. You got it. Go Friars. Would like to thank everyone for listening to episode 12 of the Friar podcast. And of course, a special thank you to longtime Friar assistant, Bob Walsh. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Friar podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars on Apple podcasts, as well as SoundCloud. If you enjoy our content and as always, Go Friars.